Support for this podcast comes from Outdoor Supply Hardware, inviting listeners to OSHA's big anniversary sale celebration, May 20th through the 26th, featuring daily deals, $15,000 in giveaways, 20% off store-wide on Saturday and Sunday, and a lot more. Learn more at OSH.com. Hi there, I'm Randa Fattah from ThruLine. If you're listening to this podcast, you know that KQED produces exceptional storytelling that keeps you informed, inspired, and entertained. Their podcasts cover issues from your neighborhood to the entire country and everything in between. Support this work today. You can help us continue to bring quality podcasts to your ears. Just head to donate.kqed.org podcast. That's donate.kqed.org podcast. From KQED. Hey, everybody, from KQED Public Radio, this is Political Breakdown. I'm Scott Schaefer. And I'm Marisa Lagos. And today on The Breakdown, USA Today Washington Bureau Chief Susan Page joins us to talk about her new biography titled Madam Speaker Nancy Pelosi and the Lessons of Power. And if you think you know Nancy Pelosi like we do, well, Susan Page really dug up some great stories and anecdotes we've never heard before, going all the way back to when Nancy Del Sandro was growing up in a political household in Baltimore, up through her rise and fall and rise again as speaker. We're going to talk to her about all those things, Marisa. But first, what a week in news. Uh, We were all anticipating a verdict in the Chauvin trial. We didn't know when it would come, and it came pretty quickly. Very quickly. Very quickly. And uh, you you could just sense the whole country, and I know our newsroom, we were kind of holding our breath because this could have gone in any number of ways. And um, I think we were relieved, A, that I think we would agree justice was done. Uh, but just it was interesting to see the different responses from law enforcement groups, many of whom you've covered mm-hmm. before. They were all very much in line in support of this verdict. Yeah, I think which makes this complicated because as many people have talked about this week, this was a very different case than, say, a use of force case involving a split second decision with a gunshot. And I think that what we've seen, I was looking back at what PORAC, which is the sort of biggest um, kind of rank and file organization in California representing police, rank and file police. And, you know, they are calling for national reforms. They're not going as far, though, as to call for some of the reforms that are in the state legislature, including one that would allow the state to essentially decertify police. We talked about this last week. Um, And so I do think that, you know, to your point, there was a a real sense that what happened to George Floyd um, was completely unacceptable, illegal. It was murder, as the jury found. But also, you know, I think that on the details now, it's going to be a challenge, um, even with some of the agreement over the facts of that case, to get to real reform. Absolutely. And I think, you know, a lot of folks were saying, uh, on Tuesday, this is a new day. This is finally we've got uh, justice. Uh, but I think at the same time, realizing there's a long way to go. And it'll be interesting to see if this opens up the floodgates in some way, giving DAs uh, more leeway in actually bringing criminal charges. Uh, we saw just yesterday, uh, Dinah Becton, the DA in Contra Costa County, announcing criminal charges against a police officer in Danville who killed somebody. And, um, you know, and then transitioning here, I guess we could to Rob Bonta, who's the new AG, confirmed today overwhelmingly in the legislature. He's promising uh, more transparency, more independent investigations. But, you know, as you know, once they get into that job, uh, they have a lot of different 
constituencies that they didn't necessarily have right. as assemblymen. Well, and this is something that actually does dovetail to the Nancy Pelosi conversation, which is this idea that, you know, in on paper, Kamala Harris, who was the attorney general, and then Javier Becerra, who proceed, you know, who, who came after her, are seen in D.C. as these like crazy California, San Francisco values liberals. And yet when you get into that type of job, um, it, it is more complicated. And also, I think that, you know, to your point, prosecutors around the country have to some extent had their hands tied by some of the existing both court decisions and laws. And so, yeah, I think Bonta stands to be the most actual progressive attorney general possibly we've ever seen. He is talking as if he will be that. Um, but to your point, I think when it comes down to it, I mean, we saw this in San Francisco, George Gascon, who ran from the left to overtake Jassy, Jackie Lacey in L.A. recently and is now really kind of in an all-out war with the rest of law enforcement. Including I mean, his own he, office. He was being dogged by Black Lives Matter protesters in San Francisco for not, you know, charging the shooters of Mario Woods. And I think what he would say was, well, the law is not on my side. I can't do that. But it is, um, I think this is going to take a real combination of both legislative action and, to your point, um, prosecutorial. And, and, and I mean, let's be clear. I mean, police officers have a huge role to play here in terms of their own response, their own actions, and how they hold uh, their colleagues responsible or not. Well, and don't forget, we have a new administration and a new sheriff in town, so to speak, and the attorney general, uh, Merrick Garland, yesterday saying that they are going to launch investigations, the kinds of investigations of civil rights violations uh, in police departments that uh, the Trump administration had suspended. So I think that's going to provide another level of scrutiny, which, uh, uh, you know, I think advocates will welcome. And it's interesting. I, I had a, a chat yesterday with uh, San Francisco police chief Bill Scott. And, um, you know, I, I think I got the sense that, you know, they welcome that kind of federal support. It's tough to make those changes at the local level without really riling up the, the rank and file, especially right. if you're an outside chief like he is. Yeah, no, I think that's absolutely right. And I think that's one of the same reasons. I mean, I, that Porak and others are calling for federal reform. Um, I do think it's interesting. I mean, Cal Matters had a piece this week kind of raising this question about how progressive can Bonta be given that he needs to run so quickly for reelection. Um, but you know, the dynamics in California have changed dramatically in the past two decades. And I do think that he's going to have more leeway unless somebody jumps in who is a, a strong Democratic candidate. Um, I just think that with the registration numbers where they are in California and he's got, you know, a lot of support. Yep. All right. Lots more to talk about. Uh, and maybe I should just mention in before we go to the break, California now has the lowest coronavirus case yes. rate in the continental Other US. Other than Hawaii. Other, Other than, than Hawaii, Hawaii, continental U.S. Let's go to is, Hawaii. Yeah, let's go to Hawaii. <laughs> All right. Before we go to the break, just a reminder, you can find lots more KQED politics coverage and analysis in our weekly political breakdown newsletter. You can sign up for it at kqed.org slash political breakdown. All right. When we return, we're going to be joined by journalist Susan Page. We'll talk with her about her new biography of House Speaker Nancy Pelosi. You're listening to Political Breakdown from KQED Public Radio. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Hey, it's Glenn Washington from Snap Judgment. And if you love what you're hearing, and I know you love what you're hearing, please consider becoming a KQED member. 
special access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. Plus, you'll sleep better at night knowing you did your part for the community you depend upon. It's in you. Please be in it. Visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to sign up now. That's podcast with an S. Thanks. And welcome back to Political Breakdown. I'm Scott Schaefer here with Marisa Lagos, and we're thrilled to have with us award-winning journalist Susan Page. She's Washington Bureau Chief for USA Today and author of the new biography. It's titled Madam Speaker, Nancy Pelosi and the Lessons of Power. Susan Page, welcome to The Breakdown. Hey, Scott, it's great to be with you. So, as you well know, there have been other books written about the speaker. One of them, in fact, published just last year, others in the past as well. What was it you were looking for? And, you know, what did you want to do different? What did you want to find and tell the story about Nancy Pelosi that hadn't been told before? I didn't think there was a, a, a biography written of her that was 360 degrees. It started with her, the ancestors who immigrated to the United States from Italy and took us right through the era when she became the leading base of the democratic opposition to the most disruptive president in our history. I think there's a still a lot that hasn't been told about Nancy Pelosi, and I'm hoping she'll write her memoir so we can learn more. Yeah. Well, you know, you talk a lot about this and other journalists. I mean, she's a tough interview on the merits, but she's also a tough interview when it gets personal because she's actually pretty private. And at one point you characterize her, I think talking about during her first campaign as ambitious, but shy, which I think might surprise some people. Do you I mean, do you still see that as kind of her personality? She told me she was still shy. You might you'd think after uh, all these decades in politics at the apex of power in the United States, she would no longer be so shy. But when I asked if I could see her high school and college transcripts, uh, <laughs> she, she looked at me like like I wanted to uh, open her purse and dump it out in front of me and go through it. Uh, she she said, uh, I'm a shy person The I don't if I can go someplace and not be the person giving a speech. That's what I like to do. And and I think that's not a pose. I think she is shy, uh, private, reserved, disciplined, all those things that make her a tough interview. Yeah. So I want to, and that is certainly something we've all experienced at one time or another, but um, so you, uh, part of the book is called The Lessons of, in Power. So, you know, what are they? One I've heard her say many times is you're never given power. You have to fight for it. Uh, what are some of the other things she's gleaned and shared with you? So that's lesson number one, and it's a lesson she learned from her, her father, which is nobody's going to give you power. You have to seize it. She's given that advice to generations of would-be politicians complaining that they are in a tough district or there's some incumbent in their way. Uh, that is, you know, that was the case with her. She plunged, not just plunged into Congress in that crowded Democratic primary in 1987, but uh, plunged into the leadership by running what amounted to an insurgent campaign against the man who thought he was in line to be the next Democratic whip. Uh, that, so I think that that uh, that is a fundamental principle for her. She has some others like uh, throw a punch, take a punch, which is if you throw a punch, don't start complaining when somebody punches back. Uh, another would be play the long game. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, And we've seen that with her any number of times where she holds her fire, that she holds something off, that she refuses to bring something up because she thinks it's going to fail. Why show your weakness, she said. Wait until you've got the votes in your pocket uh, to get there. So those are some of the things that uh, she said to me. I have to say that 
that one of the best descriptions, maybe the best single description I got of Nancy Pelosi came from a guy named Scott Schaefer. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, should we should we like disclose that Scott is quoted in your book several times? Not just quoted. I was talking to Mark Baraback, the uh, political columnist for the Los Angeles Times about Nancy Pelosi. And he said, well, you know, when Scott Schaefer was, I think you must have been in your teens and Nancy <laughs> Pelosi was getting started in politics, he said this. And I then I then called Scott to make sure that Mark Baerbeck had accurately reported his, his quote. Here it is. She's really, really good with the things you can't see and really, really bad at the things you can. Mm-hmm. The things that everyone sees that she are th- her do are the things she does least well, press conferences, speeches, impromptu remarks, television appearances, and the things that she is so good at are the things that she does behind the scenes that nobody really sees unless you're in the room with her. And we see that as recently as this week with her comments on George Floyd. Uh, She was at her worst. And yet now she's when she's in the trenches trying to negotiate passage of this big infrastructure bill, that's when she's at her best. Well, can you explain that? Because I think as political reporters, like we get what that means. We are often the ones talking to all these disparate members of a caucus. And, um, you know, she talks about weaving the tapestry, which might be one of her cheesier lines. But is but it's true, right? A lot of what a speaker or any leader's job in in a legislative body is trying to make people who have really different priorities happy. And what's the best training she got for that? She says it was raising five children. <laughs> like you, then you're governing them in chaos, right? You're trying to get organized. Events keep happening. You're dealing with uh, with people with disputes and grievances, some of them legitimate and some of them not. And you're dealing with shifting alliances. Any big family has shifting alliances, sometimes day to day or hour by hour. You also, as the, the mother, as the parent of a big family, you have to figure out what your charges are actually saying, not their words, but what do they actually mean? What is actually important? And what is actually their problem in doing whatever it is you want them to get done? And she says that even though she came from this famous political family in Baltimore, that it was raising those kids that made her a great speaker. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Political Breakdown from KQED Public Radio. I'm Scott Schaefer here with Marisa Lagos. And today we're talking to USA Today's Washington Bureau Chief Susan Page. Her new book is titled Madam Speaker, Nancy Pelosi and the Lessons of Power. Um, I want to talk to you about, of course, her iconic moments with Donald Trump and all that. But just about her family, um, there's a phrase that uh, you talk about in the book, the favor file, something that she first saw when she was a little girl watching the way her father, who you know was mayor of Baltimore, kind of dealt with the constituents. Say what the favor file was and how it how she in some ways still has one. Yeah, is there still a favor file? <laughs> you bet. Only now it's digitized. Right? The the favor file was exactly what it sounds like, which is and the favor file was actually something that her mother organized for her father, the candidate. Uh, constituents would come by with a problem. They needed to get housing. They had a son who was in jail. They had an immigration issue. And they would want help from uh, Tommy D'Alessandro, first a member of Congress and the mayor of Baltimore. And uh, Big Nancy D'Alessandro, which is how her mother was known. She was, of course, little Nancy. Uh, (laughs) Big Nancy would fill out a card with whatever the favor was they needed. They would deal with the favor. I think the family was very adept at negotiating the bureaucracy and arranging uh, help for people when they needed. And they would keep the card. And at election time, they would expect people who had gotten favors to turn out and vote for them. And they would also use people who had gotten favors for one thing 
to give a favor on something else. Somebody down the road needed a favor that this person might be able to deliver and they would turn to them. So it is classic politics in a pre-digital age. Well, and I mean, to your point, this was her mother's purview. I'm a little obsessed with Big Nancy, I have to say. So <laughs> she is such like a, just a remarkable person for her era, right? I mean, Pelosi, Nancy, little Nancy Pelosi, Speaker Pelosi has said she was born 50 years too early. And it sounds like she had a bunch of careers she wanted to do, but kind of got pulled into the family politics. Well, and to the expectations for women of her era, right? Um, She wanted to go to law school over and over again. When Christine Pelosi, who, of course, her granddaughter, who, of course, you know well, uh, I'm sure when she graduated from law school, her grandmother sent her a letter about how proud she was that she had done, achieved what she, her grandmother, had for a lifetime had wanted to do. And Christine Pelosi told me that letter is framed and hanging in her house. But Big Nancy was more than that. She was the political operator for her husband. She was an entrepreneur. She developed, designed a device that, in fact, I have. It's too bad we're on the radio because I have it here. I can show it to you. A device to give facials to women, (laughs) which she called There's a picture of that in the book, yeah. Beauty by vapor, and uh, she and it it would it had a, an allegedly secret oil that you could put in it and use it and give yourself beautiful youthful skin. I actually uh, I found her patent application for the beauty by vapor machine, which I gave to Speaker Pelosi a copy of the patent application. And one of my kids went on eBay and found a found one found a beauty by vapor vaporizer. Nancy Pelosi, uh, Nancy D'Alessandro. Have you tried it? How's your and skin? It's still, yeah, I'm not, I can't say that it works to make your skin youthful and beautiful, but it still works. Because it is you can get wrinkles out of clothes with it. It's an aluminum device that has a coil at the bottom. And so, and uh, the lid has a hole in it. So it's not perhaps scientifically the most uh, elaborate machine, but it's something she made. I saw, found, um, ads and articles about it being sold in places like Philadelphia. Wow. Well, of course, her mother had a big influence on Nancy Pelosi, but it was another woman who really launched her political career as a candidate, and that was Sally Burton, the late wife of Phil Burton, the legendary Democratic uh, near almost speaker of the House uh, from San Francisco. And on her deathbed, Sally Burton basically urged Nancy to run for the seat, which she did in 1987. And it was interesting. I mean, I was here, so I remembered it very well. She was portrayed as a dilettante. She was portrayed as a party girl, meaning the Democratic Party, not a serious legislator. Um, Did she use that to her advantage? She's always been underestimated, it seems. Always been underestimated. I think it's been to her annoyance. Uh, You know, I think that uh, I don't I think she I think she is gets um, I think at the time she got angry at those who made that charge. I remember uh, when she was running for Democratic National Chairman in 1984, 1985, after the Mondale debacle, Walter Mondale, who we lost (laughs) just a couple days ago, um, that she was openly angry about the depiction of her as an airhead or a dilettante, not a serious contender. That was the last time I could find her, though, complaining about sexist reference to sister her. I think that she decided at that point it didn't help to complain about it, and she would just go full steam ahead. I mean, that's a good point. Reading your book and thinking about both that race and also her loss at the DNC, I mean, it seems like she 
genuinely has a thick skin and is not i mean and, and i mean in recent years i mean republicans have used this in some cases to great effect to run ads not against the candidate but against pelosi herself but i don't know it's like sometimes it's hard to believe that somebody could really not take any of this personally i mean what's your sense does she do you think some of that's sort of an outward facing protection or is she really not like bothered by some of these critiques so i don't think i'm qualified to answer that um fair fair (laughs) she is but she is certainly she certainly has it I i can't tell you whether it bothers her inside or not but I can tell you she has an enormously thick skin and it has served her well uh, because she has not shrunk from a fight. And it's interesting, you know, she took on Trump famously, of course, but she took on Democratic presidents, too. She 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 basically pushed Obama, gave him no option but to go big on the Affordable Care Act at a time when that was in question. And and she challenged Bill Clinton when it came to uh, human rights in China. I mean, she she is fearless. She is comfortable with the exercise of power. And that means you better have a thick skin because if you're powerful, there are going to be other powerful forces coming out against you. Well, and jumping ahead a little bit, she becomes speaker after 2006, loses it after 2010, gets it back after the 2018 midterms. And there's that iconic moment in the meeting with Trump where she's the only woman, I think, in the room and she's standing up and she takes him on um, and talk about thick skin. I mean, do, did you get a sense of when she went into that meeting uh, that she, like, did she have a game plan? I mean, it seems like she always has a game plan. So uh, there was one other woman in that meeting, Liz Cheney, but the picture, she's obscured by the man sitting next to her. <laughs> so she wasn't, uh, maybe that's, uh, you know, symbolic or a metaphor, but yeah, right. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, I, you know, that was supposed to be a meeting on Syria. It turned into a into a meeting on impeachment. Uh, I don't think she went in there thinking, I'm going to stand up and jab my finger at the president. Uh, but she ended up doing that um, when the president became And he tweeted uh, that abusive. picture out, didn't he? So this is, the, this is so great. The White House immediately puts out that picture. You know, they don't have to put out the picture, right? right. Historically, it's you can find picture. it, but they don't have to put it out. They put it out because they think it makes her look unhinged. And Pelosi immediately <laughs> takes it and distributes it everywhere. She makes it her, the banner on her, on her Twitter feed because she knows that it makes her look like she's in charge. And by the way, last time, that was the last time Nancy Pelosi and Donald Trump had a conversation in October of 2019. He went for the rest of his presidency without them ever talking again. Wow. Well, you know, one thing that's clear through the book is, I mean, she's like got Democratic Party genes, right? It's like steeped into her from her family. And she is she is a partisan. Um, and you quote former Speaker John Banner saying basically that she wouldn't moderate her rhetoric even when he tried to do so. I am sure there are Democrats who would disagree with that characterization. But I mean, why do you think she has been at times willing to sort of push so hard, even if it may have led to some of the dysfunction we've seen in Washington? I think that's who she is. And, you know, it wasn't just Boehner. John Boehner told me that, that uh, now, you you know, Republicans have their own responsibility for the state of our of our politics, but that there were times when he wanted to soften their rhetoric a little and she never would. Actually, George W. Bush, aides to George W. Bush told me that, that as well, that he had hoped for a little less partisan edge mm-hmm. and made what they thought of as a big gesture that first time she's 
uh, inaugurated as speaker and he comes to deliver the State of the Union address and he acknowledges the historic nature of the event. Actually, aides to Barack Obama told me the same thing, uh, that she's all in, even when maybe a lighter touch would have worked better. And there's a wonderful picture. So you mentioned the picture where she's standing up, jabbing her finger at Donald Trump uh, around that big table. There's a there's another photo I found from the Obama administration where there she's standing in the Oval Office, jabbing her finger at Barack Obama with exactly <laughs> the same gesture. And Obama Obama has taken his hand and covered her hand. And it's not clear from the picture whether he's trying to calm her down or he's worried about protecting himself. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, don't want to get in the way. Um, so many other things we want to talk to you about, but we've got to ask you about her relationship with the squad, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and the other women who got elected uh, with her around that time. Uh, they've challenged her leadership at times. Uh, and I know that in your book, you say that one of the interviews, you sit down interviews you had with her was right after she had really gotten angry uh, at all that. What's your sense of her uh, relationship with them and her attitude about them? I, I would think on some level, she's got to admire their chutzpah. I think in some ways, in fact, she said this, that in some ways she sees herself in AOC, that she was um, a, a disruptive force in politics at some point when she came in. Her first speech on the floor of the House was about AIDS uh, at a time when that was a topic considered that most many politicians were trying to stay away from. Uh, so um, so she, in, in some ways she sees herself there, but there's a big way in which I think she doesn't uh, respect may be the wrong word, but where she thinks they're wrong. Mm -hmm. uh, and she thinks they're wrong in trying to be so um, so committed to their positions that they won't make compromises. And in this interview that you mentioned where she was really quite agitated about the squad, she described them, compared them to children making holy pictures, posing, she, she posing with their hands together saying, see how pure I am. While meanwhile, other people are over in the corner actually legislating. And I can tell you that I don't think taking holy pictures was meant as a compliment. <laughs> <laughs> well, right. She talks about you want to make pate, I'm making sausage. Like that idea that it's not always. She said some people want to make, some people want to make an elegant pate. Some people want to make an elegant pate, but most of the time, we're making sausage. Absolutely. Well, part of, I mean, her holding on to power coming back into the speakership was a deal essentially with her members that she is nearing the end of her time um, in that position. What's your sense about what what that what does that mean? Are we talking this is the last two year term? Do you think she'll run again? I mean, what 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 do you see? What's in your crystal ball, Susan? <laughs> So in, in 2018, in order to win uh, a, a reasonably serious challenge to her leadership, uh, she said that she would she would commit to serving only two more terms, uh, only four more years um, as a leader. <clears throat> and that change was not never codified in the Democratic House rules, by the way. So it's not like there's a rule that somebody could enforce. But she said this time when she got elected for what I think is her valedictory term, that she recognized she had made that commitment. And I, it, without having, um, there's no guarantee on this, but my sense is this is her last term as speaker and I can, I'm leader of the House Democrats. And I can't imagine that she wants to stick around as a member of Congress after all these years. She's, she's 81 years old. 
any place but Congress, that would be retirement age. And I have a question for you guys, since you know everything about <laughs> San Francisco politics. Who, whenever she steps down, who would succeed her? Everyone oh is going to run. Everyone is it's going to be. <laughs> it's I mean, going to be dirty. As you point out in the book, I mean, her daughter Christine is certainly a candidate. I mean, you could see London Bree. There's, I mean, when she ran Scott in '87, there were 14 yeah. candidates. Yeah. Um, but Scott Weiner, yeah, the state senator is is you know a serious legislator. Uh, it would be interesting to see if she endorses anyone. I right. don't. I don't know if she would. I mean, why do that, really? Well, unless it's her daughter, maybe. Unless know. it's her daughter, but you know, San Francisco is not the kind of town where we just generally hand things off to the the children. <laughs> you know, I mean, if you look at Kimber, there there have been others. Yeah. You know, daughters of famous people who you know were appointed to things and they didn't get elected. Well, and on the other hand, though, I mean, she knows that the reason she ran is because she was basically encouraged to, and I think that's something we've seen through her career, especially with women, right? Is Step up, do this thing. Um, all right, Susan, we don't have much time left, but I'm curious, what do you think Nancy Pelosi makes of you? Do you guys have a good relationship? Do you think she likes you? <laughs> How much chocolate <laughs> did she give you? Yeah, did she share her chocolate? Uh, well, the, for only the first time. The, the first interview, <laughs> I walk in and she hands me, she offers me a Dove bar and has one herself, which was very friendly. And I take a bite into it and scatter chocolate icing all over her carpet. <laughs> Cream-colored so carpet. Yes. I'm, there I am with the Speaker of the House desperately trying to pick up melting chocolate off her carpet. And I thought, this woman will never invite me back. Uh, but she did. I had I had 10 interviews, not another one where food was offered. Um, I don't know. I don't know if she, if she likes me, but I think she thought I was doing a serious job and that's why I continued to get interviews. She encouraged her husband, Paul Pelosi, to talk to me. He doesn't do many interviews. Uh, so I, I have a lot of admiration for her and I hope that she likes the book. All right. Well, I, we like the book and I yeah. really recommend it. Madam Speaker, Nancy Pelosi and the Lessons of Power. Susan Page, thank you so much. Thanks, Susan. Hey, thank you, Marissa. Thank you, Scott. And that does it for this edition of Political Breakdown, a production of KQED Public Radio. Our producer is Guy Marzarati. Our engineer is Katie McMurrin. KQED's team includes Holly Kerr- Kernan, Ethan Tobin, Lindsay, Vinnie Tong, and Erica Aguilar. I am Marisa Lagos. You can find me on Twitter at mlagos. And I'm Scott Schaefer. Follow me on Twitter. I'm at Scott Schaefer. Thanks so much for listening. Do you love learning about the San Francisco Bay Area? Its history, its people, its unique blend of cultures? Then you should check out The Bay Curious Book. I'm Katrina Schwartz, editor and producer on The Bay Curious Podcast, and I'm here to let you know that for the month of May, we've worked out a sweet deal for KQED podcast listeners. Right now, you can get The Bay Curious ebook for $1.99. That's right, $1.99. Just search for Bay Curious wherever you get your ebooks or find a link in our show notes. This offer does expire at the end of the month, though, so you'll want to act on it fast. Happy reading! Hey, it's Avery Truffleman, host of Articles of Interest. And I've got to say, I've been a fan of KQED ever since I was a little kid and I would come out to San Francisco to visit my grandma. It was just what we'd always turn on every time we got in the car, every time we were making dinner and turning on the radio. It was always KQED. 
And then over the years, I've become a massive fan of KQED podcasts because this is local reporting at its best. These are answers to questions you've always wanted to know, interviews with exciting, unusual voices, necessary journalism, all told with love and care and artistry. And did you know that a majority of KQED's funding actually comes from members? It's just people like you and me supporting the programs they love while also getting access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. If you want to sign up and be a part of this amazing community, visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to become a member today. That's podcasts with an S. Thank you for listening, and thank you for your support.